You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So the Gospels show us that in the crucifixion of Jesus, he would have spent several hours hanging on the cross. We, we, don't, we don't know the exact amount of time that it was, but it would have been somewhere between like mid-morning to mid-afternoon on Good Friday. And uh, although we don't know the exact time stamp of when he died, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, um, we do know the last thing that Jesus said, because Luke tells us in Luke 23, verse 46, these are the last words of Jesus um, that Luke records for us um, before he died. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus the Messiah, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the radiance of the glory of God, the Word of God made flesh and sent into this world. The very last thing he said before he died and later was resurrected, it's a quotation from Psalm 31 which is the psalm that we're looking at today. We have seen so far in this series, up to this point, we've seen some amazing psalms, right? They've all, they've all been good, okay? But, but, but Psalm 31 was the last thing on the mind of Jesus before he breathed his last breath. So I think we can all agree that uh, I mean, this, Psalm 31 is pretty special, right? This is the last thing on the mind of Jesus before he died. The, the message of this psalm is something that we, we want to understand. We want to know what's happening here and how do we apply this to our lives. And so what I want to do this morning and, and, and in this time is I want us to look at that. I want us to see the message of the psalm overall, and then we're going to spend the most of our time uh, really working through some lessons that I think we learn here. So that's basically the outline. We're going to see the psalm overall and, and spend most of our time working through uh, these four lessons. And, and first, though, I want us to pray. So wherever you are as you watch this video, just take, take a moment, take a minute, and ask God to send His Spirit to open your eyes to behold wondrous things in His Word. We ask God to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now we're going to look basically just at the psalm overall. What's, what's happening here? It's an unusual psalm at one level because the psalm doesn't really fit into um, a neat category. Okay, there are three things are happening here all at once. First, there are statements of petition. So David is asking God to do something. Second, there are statements of lament. God, uh, David is complaining to God about a situation. Then third, there are statements of trust in God. David is acknowledging and, and praising and thanking God for his faithfulness over everything. All, all three of these things are happening uh, in Psalm 31, and they're all just kind of mixed together. It's not a neat flow in terms of, of, uh, of how we can track with it. So what, one of the things I did as I was studying the passage was I, I took the entire psalm and I, I printed it out on, on one piece of paper, and I took three different colors of markers um, of pens, and I went through and I basically just tried to track with the, the three different you know, types of, of prayer that David is doing here. And as I did that, and as I was trying to then track all at one, well, at one view here what was happening, this is what, this is what 
I'm seeing here. The, the movement of this psalm, Psalm 31, basically goes like this. It goes from trust to petition to trust to petition to lament to trust to petition to trust. Honestly, David, he, he's just kind of all over the place. And if you are wishing, if you're getting a little judgy on David here, and, and you are wishing that he is, was, was less scattered when he prayed here in Psalm 31. Let's be honest and just know that most of us are way more disorganized than this when we pray, right? Like maybe you use an outline when you pray. Maybe there are a few bullet points that you tend to, you tend to hit and repeat. But most of the time when we pray, uh, we... We can, we can also, we like that, we can just kind of be all over the place. We go from one thing to the next, and I want you to know that's okay. It's okay. Because the main thing that we want to do and need to do in prayer is exactly what we see in Psalm 31 here. And it's that although the, the petitions and the laments and, and the trust gets all mixed and blended together, the anchor for the whole thing, is God himself. Like, it's David's trust in God that determines everything else in this psalm. So in all of, of David's petitions, the basis of every petition is God. Also, it, it, it is God and God's faithfulness that, that David knows transcends his circumstance. David looks in the past and he, he sees God's faithfulness. He, he asks about the future in reliance upon God's faithfulness. And he knows that right here in the middle of it all, in the present, even in the worst of the situations, he knows God is still God and God is faithful. That, that is the message of Psalm 31 overall. God is God and God is faithful. And now, what I want us to do is just look at four lessons then that we learn from this psalm. And I'm going to put each of these uh, into a sentence about as practically as I can. Okay, so if you, if you, if you listen by taking notes, um, these are the sorts of things that you would want to write down. Okay, so here's the first lesson that we see. It's that if you're going to humbly trust God, you must humbly know God. This goes back to verse 2. Okay, we're going to kind of jump around here. Verse 2, David asked God to be his rock and his fortress. You can see that there. He asked God, be my rock and my fortress. And then he grounds that request. He grounds that petition in verse 3 with, for you are my rock and my fortress. In other words, David is asking God to be God to him. God, be who you are to me. Now, we talked about this back in Psalm 16 because David does a similar thing there. And we, we call this sort of praying basically like the quintessential picture of humble faith because David is not bringing to God his own agenda, trying to convince God to get on board. He, he's not asking God to merely sign off on what he wants. He's not treating God like a divine butler to fetch him his comforts. Instead, David is asking God to be who God has shown himself to be. That's what I want, David says. God, I want you to be who you are. But see, in order for David to pray this way, he needs to know something about who God is. D David's humble prayer to God flows from his humble knowledge of God. 
And this, of course, makes sense to us. Like, if we don't know God, then how can we know what to ask and expect from God in prayer? We, we have to pray to God according to our knowledge of God. And our knowledge of God comes from what God has revealed to us about Himself. That's why it's called humble knowledge. There's not a single thing that we would know about God apart from what God has chosen to tell us. Okay? This means our knowledge of God is not what we think up ourselves. It is, it's, this is not what we wished God would be like. But, but it has to be according to what God has revealed. And what God has revealed is what we find in the pages of Holy Scripture. So pray with your Bibles open. Okay, <laughs> that's, the, that's what I'm saying here. Pray with the Bible open. Open And this is where it gets very practical and I think helpful if you've been going through maybe a dry season of prayer and you're maybe in a slump and you're stuck. But open the Bible and use the words of Scripture about God to help you in how you speak to God. Right? Use the words of Scripture about God to guide you as you speak to God. Because if you're going to humbly trust God, you have to humbly know Him. All right. Now here's lesson number two. Rejoice in God at every angle. And we see this in verses seven and eight. In verse seven, uh, David says that he will rejoice and be glad in the steadfast love of God. And then in the, the four lines that come after that, he, he basically explains to us what the steadfast love of God has meant for him. First, he says in verse 7, it's because you have seen my affliction. He rejoices in the steadfast love of God because you have seen my affliction. This means because of God's steadfast love, he sees your seeable affliction. Everything you have going on that can be seen by a human God sees it. And everything you have going on that could be seen by a human but is not, God sees that too. This is something I really want you to get. I want you to get this. Sometimes in our life, we can have things going on, concrete, external, visible circumstances we have these things going on, and normal people could see them, but sometimes they don't see them because sometimes normal people are not, they're not always paying attention. Sometimes normal people have thousands of other things going on, and it can feel like your seeable affliction is not seen, and that, that's a painful place to be. But know that God sees it. God sees your seeable affliction. Second, David says to God, you have known the distress of my soul. So because of God's steadfast love, he doesn't just see your seeable affliction, but he also knows your unseeable distress. The distress of your your soul, everything you have going on 
inside, deep within the recesses of your heart and your thoughts, the invisible things that nobody else knows, God knows. He knows. He knows your unseeable distress. Verse 8, David says, You have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. <laughs> see, see what he's saying here. This means that whatever God sees in your seeable affliction, whatever God knows in your unseeable distress, he doesn't quit on you. God's steadfast love means he doesn't give up on you. He doesn't hand you over. That's why it's called steadfast love. He keeps you. God keeps you constantly through it all. And then David says in verse 8, you have set my feet in a broad place. And this broad place in the Psalms, this, is, this has the meaning of safety. The idea is that you've come from, from scaling the wall, scaling the edge of your affliction and from traversing through the, the valley of your distress. And now, now you can breathe. Now you're on solid ground because God has placed your feet on solid ground, which is meant to sound particular. Altogether, we learn here, the steadfast love of God means that God sees everything about us that can be seen. He knows everything about us that is hidden, and he refuses to quit on us no matter what, so much that he has placed our feet on a, on a giant rock of solid ground, which, which means, the, this all means, I hope, the detail of God's care for you is incredible. God is involved in, in every angle of your life, which is why we should rejoice in God at every angle of our life. We're not alone. God is near. God is at work, and therefore we should be glad. You can be glad wherever you are because God's steadfast love is there, and He's doing something. He's doing something. So rejoice in God at every angle. This is number three. Submit your felt reality to the truth of God. Lesson number three. Submit your felt reality to the truth of God. Now the main section of lament in Psalm 31 comes in verses 9 to 13. Now David here, he's, he's describing more of what his distress has been like, which includes um, um, physical and emotional weariness, social conflict, calculated sabotage. I mean, he, it's been rough for him, okay? It's been rough. But in verse 14 and following, David, he, he gets back to petition and trust. David trusts in the Lord. Yahweh is his God. And then later, though, in verse 22, we, we see one more line of lament. And this is where David is recounting God's past faithfulness. So this is something that he has said in the past in verse 22, it goes, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. Now, this reminds us about something David said back in Psalm 30. Just the Psalm before this, remember Psalm 30, verse 6, David said, As for me, 
I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. So, so over here, it's in my alarm, I said I'm cut off. Over here, it's in my prosperity, I said I shall never be moved. These two things are the exact opposite in content, but basically the exact same in terms of the heart behind what's said. Do, do, do you see what's going on here? Both circumstances for David of, of alarm and prosperity, both of these circumstances led David to wrongfully exalt his felt reality. You remember what felt reality is? We talked about this is way back in Psalm Three, your felt reality is your, it's your vantage on reality. It's how you feel about something based upon your experience. And that's a real thing. We're not saying it's not real. It's a real thing, but it's not the whole thing. All right? So look, look at David's situation here. In Psalm 31, right here, when he was alarmed, when all the walls were closing in, his felt reality, what he said is, it's over. He said, it's over, he's done, God has abandoned him. Over here in Psalm 30, when he was living the high life, when he prospered and everything he touched turned to gold, his felt reality, what he said was that he had made it. He's unmovable. God will never test him. These two places are very different places, but it's the exact same presumption that makes David say what he says. In both cases, David was so overwhelmed by his felt reality that he made what he felt act like the determination of what is. But that's not how it works. You, you can bring your felt reality to God. Be honest with God about where you are. But know that that God's vantage, which sees everything, that's what really is. There, we know this. There are things that there are things that we might say in alarm, and there are things that we might say in prosperity. But everything we say must be assessed by what we securely know. And what is that? What do we securely know about God and reality? What do we know? What do we, what do we securely know about God and His reality? Well, it's what God has gone to the greatest depths to reveal to us. It's His love. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one will dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what we know. That is what God has shown us. God loves you. He loves you. So submit your felt reality to that. Submit your felt reality to the truth of God. Lesson number four, and this is the last thing. Remember that God has got your whole world in his hands. He's got your whole world in his hands. Look at David's faith in verse 14. This is David coming out of his lament, verses 9 to 13. And in verse 14, he says, But I I trust you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. And that that last phrase is significant because it's basically the same thing that David has said in verse 5. There in verse 5, he says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. And that sentence is what was on the mind of Jesus just before he took his last breath. This was the last thing that Jesus said on the cross. And so what does that mean? Like, what, Why did Jesus on the cross, in his last breath, why did he quote Psalm 31 verse 5, and what does that tell us? Well, often people in the New Testament, when they quote the Old Testament, especially when they quote the Psalms, the fuller context of the quotation is in mind. Like the, the surrounding passage of the quotation is relevant. And I think that's, that's definitely the case here with Jesus quoting Psalm 31. Jesus shows us in the quotation here, he shows us that the faith of David exampled for us in Psalm 31 is actually a foreshadowing of his own faith, of Jesus' own faith. The worst of David's lament was only the beginning of what Jesus experienced on the cross and knew he would experience on the cross. And yet Jesus trusted God. Jesus trusted his Father. And that's what he shows us by quoting Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Even though I've been walking through the valley of the shadow of death and now I'm staring death in the face and I'm about to enter into the grave, I'm yours, God. I'm yours. 
I entrust myself to you. I know you've got me in your hands and your hands are merciful and mighty and you're going to bring me through this. That's what Jesus is saying. See, these hands are redeeming hands. The hands of a redeeming God. The hands of a faithful God. The hands of resurrection power. And Jesus knew that. And so he committed himself. He yielded himself to the hand of God. Even when he was up against the worst of enemies. And that, and that means you can do the same thing. It means that, that, that you can also entrust yourself into the hand of God when you face your enemy, even your worst enemy, which is death. You can entrust yourself to the hand of God. But not, not, not only that, look, look at verse 15. Okay, In verse 15, David says, My times are in your hands. My times are in your hands. So he, he doesn't just trust God when he's suffering. It's not just when he's facing the most intense attack of the enemy, but it's, but it's, it's also his times, his, his moments, all things big and small. And the same thing goes for you. This means your times, your moments, your steps, the changing tides of your life. All of that, all of that, A to Z about your life, start to finish and every turn in between, all of that is in the hands of God. God's got your whole world in his hands. And this reminds me of what Jesus teaches us in the Gospel of John chapter 10. Okay, so... In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, um, this is what Jesus says in verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus gives us an image there in John 10 of how secure his salvation is. It's that he, he, he holds us in his hand and nobody can take us out of his hand. And Jesus is going to go on and explain that he and the Father are one and we're also in the Father's hands. But, but I, I want us to think more about what does it mean to be in Jesus' hands? Just, just think about this. What, what does it mean to be in Jesus' hands? Now, we are in, in God's hands. We, we know that. But, but more specifically, in, in, in John 10, 27, Jesus says that, I, that, that we're in his hands. Our times are in Jesus' hands. And that's important, I think, for our imagination because it reminds us that the hands that hold us are nail-scarred hands. This is for our imagination, for how we think about this. You and your times. You. This is for you, okay? You and your times. Like your entire life is held by nail-scarred hands. And, and nail-scarred hands mean that it's not just 
hands that hold you, but it's hands from a heart that die to hold you. The, the scars on the hands that hold you show you how far those hands have gone to hold you. You can entrust yourself to those hands. Right now, like right now, for where we are, um, in terms of like I'm thinking about our church, for where we are, we, you know, we're a month away from the fall semester and just for where many of us are when it comes to our season of life, um, there's a lot of transitions coming. Maybe, maybe you've got a new job you're going to be starting. Maybe you're relocating or you're moving. Maybe you're, you're leaving home for college. Whatever it is, like whatever it is you have going on, whatever it is you have uh, coming down the pike here, your times are in his hands. Your times are in his hands. And the scars on those hands were for you. So you can trust him. You can trust him because you, you are loved and you are held by Jesus. And, and maybe, maybe you're watching this video and as, as you've been watching it, you've, you've seen kind of the example of faith here in Psalm 31. Maybe you just know you don't have that kind of faith. You know that you have not given your life to Jesus. If that's you, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus and be saved. Like, like right now, <laughs> turn from your sin. Put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus and be saved. Trust in Jesus and be saved. Entrust your times into his hands. Amen.